could be a little low. These lights could be a little low. Bonsoir, good evening. Welcome, bienvenue. Uh, my name is Daryl Lynn Ross, and I'm one of the founders and uh, a guiding teacher and a member of the board of True North Insight. Um, I want to welcome, warmly welcome each one of you, and uh, of course, a warm and grateful welcome to Joseph. Thank you so much for coming. <clears throat> You know, when you welcome a guest into your home, you welcome them by their name, which is personal in particular. And I can't do that. But I do want to express True North's, True North Insight's warm welcome to each one of you. Whatever your reason for coming, your personal history, religious or ethnic background, the color of your skin, socioeconomic status, sexual orientation, gender identity, age, education, physical ability, and any other characteristics which you might identify with, please know you are warmly welcomed here. And we of True North Insight are so delighted to have Joseph Goldstein with us tonight and tomorrow. <clears throat> Joseph is one of the founders of the Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts, which recently celebrated its 40th year. And True North Insight has come about in many ways uh, because of Joseph and the Insight Meditation Society. Some of the founders, Pascal, who is on the other side of Joseph, and myself, and David Chuella, who I think is somewhere in the audience, and I met at IMS when we were practicing long retreats and volunteering back in the 90s. And inspired by IMS, we wanted to create a Canadian retreat center like IMS, which could offer retreats in French as well as English, and be grounded in our unique Canadian culture. We wanted to grow the Dharma on our soil, and we wanted to support the maturing of people in practice and train teachers who could speak to the, the experience of Canadians. So in 2003, we decided to create TNI here in Canada, and we offered our inaugural retreat in 2006. So after 14 years, we've accomplished a lot, and, and yet we feel that our organization is very young, vibrant, and growing. Although we have not established a dedicated retreat center and we're using rented spaces in different parts of Quebec and Ontario, that's actually given us a lot of flexibility for more diverse offerings. So, just to name a few things that we're doing, we now have 17 retreats a year in different retreat centers. We have regular day-long retreats in different parts of Montreal in French and in English. We have long-term study and practice programs, for now offered in English, but we hope to expand that. There are nine weekly sittings in French and English in Montreal, Ottawa, and near Guelph. We have a, med um, a prison meditation outreach program, <clears throat> which is growing and supporting inmates in their practice while in prison 
and also after they leave. And we have a Circle of Giving campaign, which we're inviting you to join to support our growth. And so uh, if, you, if you want to, <clears throat> excuse me, if you want to learn more about that, if you want to speak to one of the board members, uh, please look for a person wearing a, a little tag a board, who will be a board member or somebody closely associated with uh, True North Insight and speak to us either tonight or tomorrow. Uh, so again, thank you all for being here and I'm going to pass it to Pascal to continue. Merci Joseph pour la courte introduction. Euh, je m'appelle Pascal Auclair, je suis euh, un des euh, enseignants de Voix Boréale, un des euh, membres fondateurs aussi. Puis euh, donc, quelques mots en français pour vous accueillir chaleureusement. Et euh, comme c'est la tradition à Voix Boréale, on aime vraiment euh, euh, ouvrir notre, 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 offrir notre bienvenue là, à tout le monde, quelle que soit, encore une fois, votre, votre histoire, l'histoire de votre peuple, la, la langue maternelle que vous parliez, quelle que soit votre orientation sexuelle, genre, euh, votre situation euh, socio-économique, euh, votre poids votre, euh, votre, euh, votre euh, niveau d'habileté ou vos habiletés physiques. Euh, je pense que vous pouvez sentir l'intention, quel que soit votre âge. Et, euh, yeah, avec cheveux et sans cheveux. <rire> et euh, on the way. <rire> et donc... Euh, euh, c'est ça ce que Daryl disait un petit peu, euh, puis que je veux répéter en français ici, c'est que la, la naissance de cet organisme à but non lucratif qu'on appelle la Voix Boréale en français, euh, ça a eu lieu beaucoup à cause du Insight Meditation Society que Joseph a fondé lui-même euh, il y a plusieurs décennies. On s'est rencontrés là-bas, puis on voulait offrir euh, des services semblables, euh, une qualité d'enseignement pareille euh, au Québec, en Ontario, dans, le, dans cette région-ci du Canada. Et donc, euh, maintenant, aujourd'hui, puis depuis déjà plusieurs années, on offre plusieurs retraites par année, 17 retraites euh, cette année. Euh, on a un programme en prison qui grandit toujours, des cours, peut-être sept cours hebdomadaires euh, dans différentes villes, dont plusieurs à Montréal. Euh, Qu'est-ce qu'on offre aussi? Des journées de retraite. Alors, il y a plein de choses qui se passent avec Voix Boréale. Puis, vous êtes, donc, vous êtes ici ce soir pour entendre Joseph, mais pour soutenir cet organisme-là. Alors, merci euh, de le faire. Euh, je regarde un peu mes papiers. J'ai tout dit. Ah oui, les choses très importantes. Donc, les toilettes. Il y en a. Derrière. OK, c'est très aidant. Super. <rire> je suis content de pouvoir vous aider comme ça. Euh, il va y avoir aussi après ce soir et dans la journée demain, il va y avoir des, euh, il va y avoir des, euh, la, la vente des livres de Joseph a écrit plusieurs livres. Puis vous pourrez, si ça vous intéresse, vous les procurer. Euh, puis il va même faire une signature, je pense. Quelque chose comme ça qui va se passer. Suspense. Euh, on vous demande, s'il vous plaît, d'éteindre vos cellulaires. Très important. Après ça... Euh, à la fin de la soirée, s'il vous plaît, retournez vos, vos, euh, les choses qui ont servi à la, à la à traduction de, simultanée, l'équipement. Euh, 
Et euh, aussi, il y a Gilberte. Où est Gilberte Gilberte va prendre des photos euh, pour Voix Boréale. Si vous ne voulez pas être sur euh, des photos, euh, s'il vous plaît, si vous, avez, euh, si vous pouvez faire ça comme ça, levez la main, puis euh, Gilberte va vous identifier, puis elle ne pointera pas la caméra dans votre, euh, dans votre coin. C'est juste pour ce soir, puis il va y avoir très peu de photos qui vont être prises. Est-ce que tu peux voir Gilberte au fond, là-bas Oui. Là-bas, OK. Good, très bien, merci. So, there will be uh, pictures taken tonight. If you don't want your picture uh, taken, please raise your hand and wave a little bit and uh, Gilbert, who's taking the picture, will uh, be able to identify you. Okay. So, some, yeah, okay. Good. Uh, at the end of the session tonight, you'll be able to buy, if you're interested, books that uh, Joseph wrote, uh, One Dharma, Mindfulness, and other books. Uh, please turn off your cell phones. They're going on retreat. Um, and please return. Uh, no, that doesn't apply to English. <laughs> But we're so inclusive <laughs> that uh, if a friend of yours is, has a transmitting, translating device, help them bring it back. <laughs> That's a way to support our organization. And, uh, et je suis très content d'accueillir Joseph, qui peut-être plusieurs d'entre vous connaissez uh, sa voix, son, son enseignement. Il enseigne depuis uh, 1974. On a la chance donc d'avoir à Montréal quelqu'un qui est vraiment là uh, avec, avec des très grandes connaissances de ce dont il va parler, une connaissance profonde de, du sujet qu'il va aborder, mais aussi pour nous soutenir ici à Montréal puis soutenir notre organisme uh, généreusement. Alors là, on vient d'entrer dans un... Uh, on est dans un champ de générosité. Hein. Vous, avez, vous offrez, vous, vous, vous payez pour venir ici, ça, ça fait grandir euh, l'organisme. Joseph offre son temps euh, généreusement. Alors c'est ça qui est en train de se passer déjà. Là. On est déjà dans le, le dharma, là, dans les enseignements. Euh, et donc, euh, je pense qu'il n'y a pas besoin de plus de présentation que ça peut-être. In, in English, so I'm so happy to introduce uh, to you our teacher, uh, uh, who's been uh, teaching for decades, since 74, and he's here uh, tonight and tomorrow to support uh, our organization and to share his love and deep knowledge of the Dharma. So it's a, it's a real honor. We're very lucky. There's not many groups who get him this year. And so he's here, Joseph. All yours, merci. Thank you, Pascal. We had a lovely afternoon at Bota Bota. <laughs> so if I'm feeling a little too relaxed this evening, just... Uh, I thought we might start with a short uh, sitting meditation. I'll guide it a little bit for those of you who may not be familiar with the practice. Uh, sit for just 10 or 15 minutes. So if you just sit comfortably, uh, but not too, too comfortably. You know, it's best if your feet are flat on the floor and um, sitting somewhat upright. And often in this tradition, we sit with our eyes closed, but it's also possible to sit with the eyes slightly open, so whichever you prefer. 
Begin by simply settling into the awareness of the body, the body sitting. Just sit and know you're sitting. It can be that simple. And as you sit and know you're sitting, you might become aware of some background ambient noise or sound. Simply be aware of that in the background. You'll be aware of my voice. Settle into the awareness of the body. The body sitting, the body posture. The awareness there is a body. As you know, the body's sitting, feeling it. You might become aware of your body breathing. Quite a natural process. There's no need to narrowly focus on the breath. I'd rather feel the body breathing within the framework of the whole body sitting. need to force the breath or breathe in any certain way. You simply know you're sitting. And you feel the natural rhythm of the body breathing. As the body breathes in, <coughs> know you're breathing in. As the body breathes out, know you're breathing out. It's that simple.
as you sit and know you're sitting, <coughs> you'll be aware of different sounds. The background ambient sounds, the sound of my voice, other sounds in the room. You'll be aware of the body breathing. Simply staying relaxed and alert at the same time. When the mind is attentive, you may notice different thoughts or images pass through the mind. See if you can notice the thought or image when it arises. You might even make a small acknowledgement, thinking or seeing silently in mind. If the mind gets carried away in a train of thought, a train of association, as soon as you become aware, simply come back to the body sitting. Sit and know you're sitting. Feeling the body, feeling the breath. Let the mind and body be relaxed and also alert. Aware of the body sitting, aware of sound, aware of the body breathing, and aware or mindful of different thoughts or images 
as they appear and disappear in the mind. Well, you just attended a 10-day meditation course. (laughs) It's basically that simple. It's just practicing that. Uh, And of course, as we do, it begins to deepen into different levels of understanding. So this evening, I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, compassion and equanimity in challenging times. Um, It seems these times are rather challenging on many levels. You know, just what's happening in the various political realms, in, you know, the tremendous upheaval in the Middle East and the refugee crisis and so many different kinds of suffering in the world. So the question really is, how can we hold this? You know, there's so much, and especially given the uh, immediacy and the intensity of the media these days. You know, I'm sure you feel, as I often do, uh, that it's easy to just get overloaded with all the information, and it's... it's <laughs> doesn't stop. Um, So is there some balanced way to both be open to it, to feel responsive to it, and not to get overwhelmed by it all, you know, or to withdraw from it? And that seems to me the challenge of basically what our meditation practice is about, but it's really about applied meditation in the world. You know, how are we using our hearts and minds in the face of all of these challenges? So it seems to me that there are two really key elements in learning how to be with all of this in a skillful way, in a wholesome way. And it has to do <coughs> with the balance of equanimity and compassion. Now we may hear more in our lives, we may hear more about compassion. You know, and a lot of people are engaged in very compassionate response to situations and doing a lot of great work. We probably hear less about the importance of equanimity That's just as a word and as a value, that seems to uh, 
just have a somewhat lesser uh, presence in our consciousness. And yet understanding equanimity, I think, is the key to be able to respond compassionately in all kinds of situations without going to overwhelm, without being overcome by it all. So what is equanimity? <laughs> this is going to be a very brief, uh, just a few comments on it. But in the way that we use the term, one might think of equanimity as that mind space uh, of impartiality. You know, where the mind is just open to see things as clearly as we can in their totality. The good, the bad, the difficult, the challenging, the easeful. So in that way, it could be likened to space. You know, space holds everything. And space doesn't discriminate between this and that. It's just the space that contains everything. So equanimity has that quality in the mind. It has that quality of spaciousness that is non-reactive. It doesn't, it doesn't jump to conclusions or jump to conditioned reactivity in ourselves. It's that space and it's really a, an easefulness of mind that's open, spacious, sees as best as possible the totality of what's going on. Now this does not imply non-discernment. So it's not kind of a vague, settling back, deluded, oh, everything's okay. That's not equanimity, that's just fog. <laughs> Equanimity is very alive, it's bright, it's clear, it's balanced, it's open, and it can discern what's what because it's seeing everything. It's not one-sided, it's not coming from a partial point of view. So in that respect, equanimity is the absolute uh, necessary groundwork for wisdom, foundation for wisdom. So as we're facing or as we're confronting difficult situations, whether personally, in our own lives, in our relationships, in our work, in the world, politically, socially, you know, when we're confronting difficult situations, really the question the key question that we need to ask is what is the most effective means for addressing this situation, for addressing this problem? Because we could be moved by compassion to do something, but if we're not clear about what needs to be done or what can be done or what we're able to do, then very likely we can just go in and muddle things even more. So it's equanimity which gives us that first stable platform within ourselves 
in which we can see, we can assess, we can discern. Okay, there's this situation that needs addressing. Maybe it's some injustice or inequality or political mess, whatever it may be. We're seeing it, we're seeing the totality of it, and we ask the question, well, what's the most effective way of responding? Do you see the importance of this before, before jumping in? So one question is, and I'll talk just a, a little bit more about equanimity. One question is, how do we find this space? Because I think most of us who, are so, who have been somewhat introspective in our lives are not unaware of how quickly reactive our hearts and minds can be. You know, we see something or we hear something on the news or, you know, some political situation of which we now have many south of the border, you know, and it's so easy to just jump right into a reactive judgment. You know, I hate this, you know, or whatever, whatever it might be. So the question is, are there some tools, even, even little tools, remembrances, little reflections, that can just help bring us back from that quick reactivity to a place of greater equanimity? So, okay, this is what's happening. Can I see it? Can I take it in? Can I understand it in its fullness? So there are just two two little uh, tricks of the trade uh, that I found helpful in even remembering what equanimity is about. So as I say, in the moment, it's very easy to just get caught up in our initial reactions. One thing that's very important to remember in general in life you know, as we navigate all the many ups and downs and twists and turns and challenges and difficulties of our lives, we need to remember that a vast majority of what happens in our lives is completely outside of our control. We would like to think that we are the center of the universe and that what we want and what we desire and what we'd like should be how things are. Because it's obvious that they would be the right things to do. But as you've probably noticed, the world is not quite organized that way. We actually are not at the center of the universe. We are simply a part of this great, mysterious whole. And things happen on every plane, every level, and in every circumstance through a vast multi multitude of conditions. You know, in Buddhist terminology, it's always talked about causes and conditions give rise to things happening.
just a, a very simple example. Yesterday in flying up to Montreal, get to the airport, plane delayed an hour. Oh, an hour's not too bad. An hour goes by, oh, delayed another hour. And meanwhile, the, the flight afterwards was canceled. So they, and the, it was, the weather was quite bad in Boston yesterday. Another hour goes, oh, delayed further. And there were people making connecting flights to Europe and out to Calgary and you know, going all over the place. And it was just very interesting to watch the different reactions. You know, this was a very impersonal situation. No one had any control of it. You know, it was the weather, and they said there was one runway under construction, and it was just causes and conditions. And it was very interesting to see the difference between getting stressed about it and having at least some measure of equanimity. Okay, this is happening. It's outside of my control. There's nothing I can do about it. Whew. Just, okay, sit back, relax, breathe. Huge difference. And this is, this is about a very small thing. So just imagine being able to apply that same principle in much more challenging situations. To remember, to realize, you know, whatever our feelings may be about it, very often it is outside of our control to do anything about it. We don't have the capacity to do something about it. And so that just helps us understand the bigger picture, to relax. But right here is a key point in understanding equanimity, and it's what leads into compassion. Very often people will make the assumption or will somehow make the inner move from the understanding, yes, the world is not ordered the way I would like it to be. A lot of things are happening that I don't like, often for good reasons. I don't have control over what's happening. So right here is the key point, because very often people will move from that understanding to indifference. Oh, I can't do anything about it. And so we kind of retreat into just, well, a kind of indifference about what's going on in the world. And they confuse indifference with equanimity. So it's extremely important to see that these are two very different things. In Buddhist terminology, indifference is called the near enemy of equanimity because it looks like equanimity superficially, but it is actually a completely different state. Indifference is withdrawn. You know, we're pulling back. Equanimity is like space. Equanimity is holding everything with discernment. So be, be watchful of that. You know, developing the equanimity is essential. And we have to realize a lot of things are outside of our control. 
and yet we don't need to fall back into indifference. So just another uh, element which I find extremely, extremely interesting, and I, I use this a lot in my life, um, in terms of strengthening equanimity. And that's when I find myself caught up in some drama or other, some reactivity or other. You know, it could be personal, it could be organizational, it could be societal, global, you know, on whatever level. Um, one of the things I really love to do, I love to read history. And I just find it very interesting to look back historically. And one of the examples I give some years ago, was, I don't know, maybe five years ago now, I read this amazing book about Genghis Khan, you know, I think 13th century or something like that. He ruled most of Asia and into Europe. I mean, he was, he was probably the most powerful person on earth at that time, you know, and controlled the lives of millions and millions of people, and cities were destroyed, and a huge force on the planet. So I'd like to ask you a very pointed question now. How many of you have thought about Genghis Khan today? Probably not, probably not too many of you. <laughs> because in the long sway of history, even given the immense influence and power, and some of it was for good and a lot of it was for destruction, but huge, huge influence. But in the long course of history, it was there and powerful and impactful and a lot of suffering involved. And now we hardly even think about him. And now you might even think of geological time. You know, when we expand our view of time, of history, whether it's individual history of countries, of civilizations, of the earth itself, of species arising and passing, you know, we get a really big picture. Really big. Four and a half billion years, the sun's going to explode. You know, goodbye Earth. I don't know, I just find that it's, it enlarges everything. And it doesn't mean going to indifference. And I'm going to explain a little bit about how we don't go to indifference. But it provides a frame, provides a very big frame for holding it all with balance and with connectedness, and, and with a greater ease, where we don't get so tight or contracted or stressed in the face of these very real challenges. So the avenue for not getting caught in indifference, not falling into indifference, is compassion. And what does compassion mean? Com compassion is that feeling that is aware of the suffering that's going on. 
and wants to do something about it. It's that feeling that wants to alleviate the suffering. So equanimity actually opens us to the full range of what's there, and we let it in. We see it, but from a place of balance, not from a place of our own contracted reactivity. And then what we can notice is that out of that equanimity, the heart, the mind, begins increasingly to respond quite spontaneously with compassion to the suffering that we see, you know, that we're involved with. Compassion actually comes when we're willing to come close to suffering. You know, if, if, and our tendency is not to. So I think it's important not to assume that the totality of our conditioning is compassion. There may be a lot there, but there's a lot in our conditioning which pulls away from pain. And we can see it in our own bodies and see it very clearly in meditation practice. When you're sitting, just out of interest, how many of you have done, involved in meditation of some kind? So, many, almost most of you. So you'll know this very well. How often when you're sitting and you feel some strong pain in the back or the knee or the shoulders, how often is your first response, oh good, this is a chance for me to be with pain? (laughs) It's probably not the first reaction. Maybe we'll get there. But the first react, the first conditioned reaction to pain, I don't like this, we have aversion to it. It's a pulling away from it. Well, we can extrapolate that to all the suffering in the world, in which we hear so much. Often there is an immediate compassionate response, but sometimes it can just be too much, you know, and we can feel, you know, we can feel the aversion, not wanting to come close, needing to, in a way, protect ourselves a little bit. So it's, it's really helpful just to become aware of all this. This is without judgment and without self-judgment about it. We're just really watching the conditioning of our hearts, of our minds, in the face of suffering, knowing that compassion arises from a willingness, and this is a practiced willingness, to come close to suffering. Just as with the pain in meditation, We may have an initial reaction, but then we remind ourselves, okay, it's okay. Let me just feel it. It's okay to feel pain. It's okay to feel unpleasant. And so we can feel the heart, the mind soften, settle into it, feel it. We can do the same thing with the suffering we come face to face with in the world. Even if at first we feel a little distant, we can remind ourselves, no, let me, let me open to this. Let me feel it. It's okay that I feel this suffering. What happens from that is a very powerful inner, we could say, transformation or development. And that is 
the more willing we are through practice, you know, this does not happen just in a moment. We need to undertake it as a practice. But the more willing we are to open to the suffering that's there, what happens is there's a tremendous development of empathy. You know, because we actually begin to feel the suffering of another because we were willing to come close to it. Right? If we're at a distance or just know it intellectually, it often doesn't drop into the heart. Right? And so we may know that the suffering's there, but we don't necessarily have that empathetic feeling for what that person or people or group are actually going through. So it's really, it's a very beautiful process. Equanimity and just developing it to some extent gives us the balance. It creates the spaciousness in our minds, in our hearts, to see the totality of what's there, the ability then to begin practice coming closer to the difficult, you know, to the, and sometimes it's really painful, you know, what's going on in the world, and sometimes in ourselves, or with people, you know, really close to us. The equanimity gives us the strength to actually be able to come close, to open to it, to see, yes, this is what's here, the coming close to the suffering in a very beautifully transforming way opens the heart empathetically you know, to what the other person or the group of people or ourselves, what we're going through. And then out of that empathy, the key question of compassionate action arises. And I think this is where compassion and equanimity just come together so beautifully. Because really the question that crystallizes compassionate response. It's a phrase that comes from a book title uh, written years ago by Ramdas and Paul Gorman. It was a book on compassion. And the title of the book, which I loved, was How Can I Help? How Can I Help? And I find that is just, it just captures everything I've been talking about. It's like the equanimity of discernment. It's realizing that there are many situations where we may not be able to do anything. The equanimity allows us to come close to the suffering that's really in our lives. We feel more empathy. And then we ask that question, well, how can I help? Is there something I can do? And if we hold that question and are really motivated by compassion, by wanting to alleviate the suffering, kind of 
many unexplored possibilities begin to open themselves. You know, things we may not have thought of or ways we might be able to help. Just holding the question, uh, are you familiar with the term koan in Japanese uh, Buddhism? It's like a, it's a little phrase or a, say a problem or that's just held in the heart and you, you hold it and you hold it and it doesn't seem to have a very specific rational answer, but it contains within it the seed of really, really great wisdom. So how can I help? It's almost like a compassionate koan. You know, this is what we can bring to the world, just holding that and then seeing. Because opportunities present themselves all the time in big ways, in little ways. How can I help? And I've just found this whole practice to be uh, tremendously uh, enlivening. Just as equanimity can go to indifference, the key point with compassion, and this is something that needs our attention because it's very easy for compassion to slip into its near enemy, where we think it's compassion, but it's really not. And that's first when it goes kind of to sorrow. You know, in the face of seeing so much suffering in the world, it's very easy to sometimes just be overwhelmed by the sorrow of it all. especially given the immediacy, you know, of the media and the pictures. And uh, so sometimes it's heartbreaking what, what we're seeing and becoming aware of. And it's very easy to go into sorrow. Sorrow is not compassion. And this, what I'm about to say, is really a subtlety of discernment. And you would need to really investigate this carefully for yourself, test it for yourself. Don't, don't necessarily just believe it. Uh, but I found it very interesting that in this quality of, you could almost call it sorrow overwhelm, that in that there is, an, there is a thread or an element of aversion to the suffering. We don't like the suffering so much. There's so much aversion to it and to feeling it that we just go into overwhelm. That's a very different feeling than the feeling that arises in our heart when we hold the question in the face of suffering, how can I help? Can you feel the difference just now? if If the how can I help is what's there. That's uplift. Even in the face of suffering, that's uplifting because we're engaged and we're engaged in a positive and discerning way. Being overwhelmed or going to aversion just leads to despair. And it doesn't help us and it doesn't help anybody else. So I think this is basically the 
frame work I wanted to present this evening. Uh, and I hope you got, you know, some, some idea of both the importance of equanimity and compassion, how the one is the support for the other, the dangers in each, that equanimity doesn't go to indifference, that compassion doesn't go to sorrow, and that we use both of those qualities to really help us engage in our own lives and in the world in a really meaningful way, in a way that can be of service to the world. I thought for the rest of the evening, and this was really uh, you know, my intention, was just to open, open it for discussion or comment. This, the theme of how to live in these challenging times seems very relevant you know, for all of us. And so I would just be interested in any questions or comments uh, that you may have. There are some mics around, so if you raise your hand, somebody will appear with a microphone for you. There's two mics, one there, one there, they can line up. Okay, I think you have to come up to the mics. My name is Elaine. I'm from Ottawa. I'm very happy to be here today. I'm, I'm really grateful for your words. It's very difficult to speak I in speak front of an audience. Speak closely into the mic. Is this better? Yes. Okay. Um, I'm wondering if you could provide a bit of guidance on the question, how can I help, in the sense of how can we help ourselves before helping others. Um, as an action-oriented person, I find myself helping all around the city, always, and at the detriment sometimes of my own personal energy. And it's sort of like a deteriorating process. Yes, yes. And I often hear words of the importance of public service, and that is something I wholly embrace and potentially not a little too much. And I would just love uh, your, your insight and your guidance on, I hope I've been clear. Yeah, very clear. Okay. And thanks. That's a very common situation and a common problem. And years ago, um, I was teaching uh, quite a number of retreats for environmental and social activists, uh, intensive meditation retreats. Uh, they weren't an easy group. <laughs> but it was, uh, I loved doing it. But the biggest problem that people had in their lives was burnout. You know, because they were so engaged and so active and just as you said, not taking care of themselves. It wasn't sustainable. So it became very clear to them, also being on retreat and taking that time for themselves, that this was an essential piece of that self-care. You know, that it, 
you absolutely have to take some time, some quiet time in one way or another to relax, to let go, to recharge. Of course, meditation, uh, I'm a little bit biased, but <laughs> I have found it to be an amazingly effective way to kind of clear out and to recharge. Another key piece of this, and it's what I referred to when I was talking about compassion, it's really important for you to watch your mindset when you're engaged in the social action. Because it's not uncommon at all for people to respond to all kinds of injustice. You know, whether it's environmental or racial or economic, there's injustice on so many levels. It's so easy and natural to respond with anger at the injustice. That anger is not a sustainable energy to effect action. You know, it can be a powerful initial charge for engagement, but it became very clear, and, and to these people on retreat also, anger just burns one up. You know, and so we need to find another motive for engaging in action. It doesn't have to be anger at the injustice. And the move, and this also takes some practice because we have to really understand uh, the conditioning of our own minds, of how our minds are working, of how they've been conditioned to react to situations. And the fact that the conditioning is not fixed in stone. We can see that conditioning which is serving us and see that conditioning which is not serving us. And so if we begin to see, yeah, well, my response even past the initial kind of outrage, but I'm just being fueled in all my work by this anger, if we can begin to see that and realize this is not healthy for us, and in the long run it's not going to... Uh, be effective for what we want to do, then we can begin to move, we can begin to change our conditioning more to that place, well, how can I help? How can I help is not an angry question. Right? It's really a question of compassion. And you look at, you know, there's, there are so many outstanding examples of people who were able to do this. I just, you know, the iconic figure, you know, in certainly American culture uh, for this is Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. You know. I, in watching, you know, some of the videos of the marches, the civil rights marches, and surrounded, both in North and South, people filled with hatred, you know, towards him. I mean, it was, it was amazing to see. And somehow... He could do all the work he did from a place of love. You know, it was, it was amazing. So it's an example of, of what we can be practicing. So that's the other part of it, both is taking time. That taking time to take care of yourself is not taking time away from your work. It's making your work possible.
and then to see the quality of your heart and mind of how you're engaging in the work. So those are the two things that come to mind. I wonder if you could expand that. I'm going to stop you one quick second. Je voulais juste mentionner que si vous avez des questions en français, n'hésitez pas à venir les poser en français, puis on va les traduire en anglais pour Joseph. We're going to take French questions and we'll translate them. Merci. I wonder if I could ask you to expand that discussion of anger into something else uh, about fear. If anger is the flashpoint, it's often a substitute for fear or a transformation of it, but Anger can burn itself out a lot faster. Fear can simmer. And the world is a fearsome place. And things happen. Given that fear may be more hardwired into us, what can you suggest mm. in the face of that? Yeah. Uh, also another great question. And uh, I'm, at least in the meditative realm, uh, This may be putting it too boldly, but I'm an expert in fear. <laughs> of all the various afflictive emotions that came up in my practice, that was the one that was by far the most difficult and the most pervasive. So I worked a lot with it, you know, over many, many years. So I learned a lot from all those years of practicing with it. The key learning, which will hopefully save you many years, <laughs> and, and really, this happened in a moment, although it was the fruit of many years of practicing with that. There were times when the fear was so strong in me. It was irrational. It, I was afraid to go from sitting to standing. I mean. The, the, completely irrational. But that emotion was, just, for whatever reason, of my conditioning or past lives or whatever, that's what was coming up. It was, it was debilitating fear. And then I saw it played out in, in less dramatic ways in many interactions, and you know, that would be the first response. So after practicing it, with it for a long time and a lot of retreats. At one point, and many of you have heard my talks, maybe have heard this story, I was just doing walking meditation on a retreat and something shifted in my relationship to the fear. And the, the, the shift was expressed in the sentence in my mind if this fear is here for the rest of my life, it's okay. So that it's okay became my magic mantra with fear. And what I realized in that moment, that what had been making it such a powerful force in my life was my aversion and non-acceptance of it. Because it's a very unpleasant emotion. And so just as with physical pain, our initial reaction, I don't like this, and I want it to go away, with fear even more so than physical pain, it's such an unpleasant emotion, the tendency, 
I don't like this. I want this to go away. And so even when I thought I was being mindful, because I'd been practicing with it a lot, oh, fear, fear, fear. It was always go away. And what was so interesting, and I learned this the hard way, resisting something or having aversion to something is actually feeding it. So all that time that I thought I thought I was being mindful, I was actually strengthening the fear by the aversion to it. When I finally, and this took a long time, it's okay. It's an unpleasant feeling. It's okay. It's okay to feel it. When my heart really relaxed into the okayness of the feeling, okay. It was amazing. The whole congestion of fear broke up and it passed through. And it does not mean that fear never arises again or disappeared forever. But since that time, I'm much more skilled in just allowing it to be there, feeling it, letting it come and go. Because like everything else, it is an impermanent changing mind state emotion. It's not always there. Comes when conditions created and then fades away. So I would suggest this particular gift of the magic mantra comes with the price of admission. (laughs) It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. Just let me feel it. You know, and I think so. It's in your relationship to it is what unlocks it. Hi. First of all, thank you for the teaching. Um, uh, I want to say I really appreciate um, framing compassion in terms of equanimity and this idea of discernment and what is effective. Um, and I think. Uh, thinking especially, you know, as a Buddhist or wanting to be helpful, the question of how can I help, the answer to that isn't always obvious, especially to the person or being that you might want to help. Yes. Um, And uh, tied to the first question in your answer that kind of got into it, um, and one of the real challenges I think we have right now is... (coughs) There's so much aggression in the world, and there's a lot of aggression reacting to that aggression. Very um, aware, educated, rightfully angry aggression. And um, I find myself balancing wanting to understand that with the flip side of, you know, um, Chogyam Trungpa used to talk about idiot compassion. And the flip side of it being, you know, just doing the thing that you think is going to help that doesn't help at all, right? How to actually find that space of equanimity, um, to me, is the biggest challenge. I mean, the person that I think probably needs the most help in the world right now is in charge of it, so to speak. (laughs) And there aren't really many people who seem to want to help him, you know? 
um, how, how, how do you find space for him in your heart? There's a lot in your question, and it is a very pressing question for a lot of people. Taking it down a level to relating to people in your life, or maybe there aren't any, but maybe there are, who sort of represent that viewpoint, you know, and how there might be that tendency of anger or aggression to, to that quality of, you know, an aggressive worldview. I, I think that the, the first step we can do is really to listen. You know, because it's so easy, again, first to go to immediate reactivity and not even to begin to try to understand, okay, what, how in the world can these people be supporting this person, these policies, whatever. So instead of, go, instead of closing off right away, you know, I think that the challenge, and sometimes it's really challenging, Can we just try to listen and try to understand, okay, well, what's behind it? You know, because nobody's going to change because of your aggressive reaction to them. You know, just <laughs> the aggression builds aggression, and it's, it doesn't go anyplace. Um, so that's in terms of not the big guy at the top who probably you won't have an opportunity uh, in that one-on-one -on -one way. <laughs> but maybe there are some people in your life you can practice on. <laughs> you know, and because that will, even in small, you know, small ways, to actually practice that possibility of listening to people that you profoundly disagree with. You know, and, and think are doing really harmful things. I don't know. Is, to at least see if there's a possibility of establishing some level of connection just through listening. Okay, well, what's, be, what's behind this? You know, why is that person, why do they have that view of thinking? In terms of relating to The top guy. <laughs> it's a challenge. <laughs> but years ago, when I was teaching, I was first teaching, this was in 1974, 75, in, um, at Naropa Institute in Boulder, Colorado. And it was the first, this was like a Buddhist, now it's a Buddhist university. At that time, it was just a summer school. And started by Chogyam Trungpa and um, so I was teaching there, and I remember this one Hindu yogi was passing through. Uh, and his name happened to be Ramdas, but not, not the American Ramdas. 
uh, and he said something. I, did, I didn't know him beforehand. I've never seen him since. It was just like a pass-through you know, of a connection. But he said one thing that has stuck with me all these years. You know, so it landed someplace deeply. And this will be a paraphrase because it was that many years ago. But he said something like, when he looks at the world, he doesn't see war, he doesn't see violence, he doesn't see injustice, he sees ignorance. And what struck me was that just the reframing in that way changes our response. Because we can get really angry at the manifestations and the people doing all these things, but when we really drill down to the root of why people are doing such harmful things, it's all coming out of a profound ignorance you know, of the effect of so many of these actions. But what is the response to ignorance? Does it make sense to get angry at ignorance? Or does it make sense in whatever way is possible and sometimes it's beyond anything we can do? But what makes sense is to awaken people from their ignorance. That's what's going to be effective. Right? That's a very different uh, inner uh, standpoint. So just one more story, somewhat related to this. Just after 9-11, I was teaching a retreat in New York. Not the city, outstate. But there were a lot of New Yorkers on the retreat. And we were doing the loving-kindness meditation. You know, and those, most of you may are familiar with it. It's, it's the practice of loving-kindness, starting with oneself, you know, and then a benefactor, a friend, a neutral person. And then you go to the enemy, somebody who's difficult. And then to all beings. And so this was just after 9-11. And of course, the question came up as we got to you know, purveying spreading loving thought, loving wishes to the difficult people, to the enemies. Many people were saying, there is no way that I can send metta, loving kindness to these people who just flew those planes into the buildings. So that was not even a remote possibility. So that became very interesting to me as a teacher, trying to understand the Buddha talked about metta as being universal, that it really can be and should be extended to everyone. So how is it possible to understand that universal application in a situation like this? You know, so that was a koan. That was a real, okay, well, and it took me a little while. I was reflecting on this for quite a bit. And then I realized that there is a way, and it's related back to the seeing of ignorance. There is a way to send metta, even in that situation, to the, to the terrorists. 
you know, and this still, you know, unfortunately, still going on in, in terrible ways. Wouldn't it be possible to extend the wish to everyone, may you be free of hatred? Is there anybody we would exclude from that wish? May you be free of hatred. May you be free of ill will. You know, may you be free of greed. When you get to the root causes of all these destructive actions, it's always some mind state, unwholesome mind state, that's driving the action. So the metta is not, oh, may you be happy, may you be well. That, those words, those phrases are not going to cut it. But if you get to the heart of it, the metta is absolutely appropriate. You know, may you be free of hatred. May all beings be free of hatred. And all the actions that come from hatred. So I think that's, that's the level we have to approach this. You know, may all of our leaders be free of ignorance, be free of delusion. And if that's the space we're coming from in ourselves and we practice that, then it might open possibilities of ways of responding that would not be clear if we were just consumed by anger. As I said, equanimity and compassion in challenging times. Um, Yeah, I wanted to um, bring it to a more personal level. where it feels like it's maybe even harder to work with it. Um, And my question has to do with how to deal with great grief in the suffering of um, people you're close to, like your children, Um, when the phrase, the equanimity phrase that I was hearing was, um, may I accept things just as they are? And you feel like, oh, no way. Your first reaction is, there's just no way. Um, and there's just a, a deep grief. So how do you, you know, what can you do in that situation where equanimity seems theoretical or cold, um, and yet there's a sense that there's a solution there, but it just doesn't seem immediately available? That is, that brings one right to the edge of one's practice, mm-hmm. that situation. I mean, and, and so it's, it's a profound question. Just what came to mind just as you were speaking was it would be really interesting for you to observe the energy of your relationship right in those moments, you know, when you're with the suffering, what's the quality of your energy? What's the quality of your heart when you're not accepting it and when you've come to some level of, okay, this is how it is? 
It would be very interesting. To, and I, I say this by way of not a conclusion, just as a possible investigation. Um, but the non-acceptance of whatever the situation is The feeling I got in that the non-acceptance was in some way an energetic closing off or pushing away to the truth of what was actually there. Right? And so, but understandably so, just as, you know, we're talking about fear, it's an unpleasant, it's a profoundly unpleasant, distressful, situation, suffer, you know, the suffering. So the tendency is, no, I, I don't want to accept this. But the non-acceptance is, you know, you can almost feel kind of the, the contracting away from the situation. And what would be the possibility? And just to, you know, experiment with this in yourself. What's it like even for a few moments of what happens if the heart actually can, this is how it is, you know, and there's a lot of suffering here, and there can be, you know, a huge amount of love and compassion. And my sense is that that love and compassion actually, how do I say this? will be manifest and expressed more ener on the energetic level, not, not on the words of what you're doing, but just on the energy within you. That love and compassion, seems to me, will be there on that energetic level, will flow much more freely in the acceptance rather than in the non-acceptance. Do you follow what I'm Does this make any sense to you, or? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know there's a level of aversion, um, and I know that it's tight and closing off. Um, but it's just, it's just getting there. It's just, yeah, yeah. how do you do that when it seems like, yeah. it's just almost, it almost seems like an idea. And then the second question is, what do you do with grief? Yeah, well, it, it, in, in a way, it's the same question, and the same question and the same process. And it is a process, it's not, not necessarily immediate, but in the face of really difficult, unpleasant, painful, whether it's physical sensations or emotions, the process is reminding oneself, it's almost coaching oneself, it's okay, just let me feel it. It's getting okay to feel the pain of it. Because the reaction, the conditioned reaction, is not to want to feel the pain of it, it's too painful. Right? So it's a practice, and 
but it's a practice that you can do, you know, if you understand what the process is. If you understand that it is a process, it's okay. It's painful, and it's okay to just, uh, I can feel this. And then you won't. Then you'll go back to, you know, this is unbearable. And then you notice that. And then you, no, no, okay, just let, just let me be with it, even if it's like for a minute or two minutes. But if you get even a small opening of seeing the possibility of going from rejection of it to acceptance of it, you know, and you just, you get a glimpse of that possibility then you have a basis for practice because then you know. And all of that will be motivated if you see in yourself the difference between the two. You know, if you're not, if you're not seeing the difference, you're not going to be motivated to do the practice and the practice is challenging because it is so painful. So just, this, this is, a related uh, process which I think is more generally applicable to everyone, not um, in your situation, it's a particularly poignant and painful specific situation in which this can be applied. But this kind of discernment of how different responses feel energetically and seeing which are closing and which are opening, that's like, that's like fine-tuning our awareness of our whole system. So one arena where many people conflate two opposing energies and think that that's how it has to be. And that is conflating the feelings of love and attachment. You know, when we're with somebody we love, for many people, it's almost unthinkable that we could love them without being attached to them. You know, because it's like our whole culture and society and upbringing, and these two things have just become so interwoven that, of course, love means attachment. It's very interesting, if, if one is interested, <laughs> to just, if this is a situation in one's life, just to look really carefully, to discern, take those times when you're feeling most loving. You know, you're with somebody, and it could be a partner, it could be a child, it could be a parent, a friend, somebody where you're just feeling very loving, and to notice how that feels. My experience is that it's just an open heart. It's like a generosity of the heart. Right? You, just, you just want the, the other person to be happy. Right? Is that when I've noticed times of most attachment to the other person, and I'm taking the time to notice the feeling, the attachment, it's like a holding the love is like opening, and attachment is this. Now, one of the things that I saw really clearly, 
but is not often seen, is that attachment does not in any way enhance the feeling of love. It's not giving us anything but, but suffering. But we think it's, <laughs> it's part of the bargain. This is where meditation, you know, what meditation is a refinement of our awareness. So instead of just living our lives, playing out all of these patterns of conditioning, which have been learned from so many different sources, meditation gives us the tool, the tools, to really be discerning very clearly on very refined levels Okay, what's really going on here? You know, what is love? What is the feeling of love? What is the feeling of attachment? Are they the same? Does the one help the other? You know, so this is not a question of belief. You know, I'm, everything I'm saying tonight, I'm not in any way assuming you should believe any of it. It's all just suggestions for everyone's own investigation of these questions. And I think this is somewhat related to your situation. You know, what is it that really helps, even if it's not the conventional response or, or the learned response? So there's a tremendous amount that can be open. And my feeling is that a genuine opening to the level of suffering that's there is the doorway to tremendous compassion, which is very different than aversion. Yeah. So it's, it's a challenging, but a, a tremendously uh, poignant and rich situation, because it's so uh, vivid and so present. So I want to take this uh, even more personal, and I'd like you to explore more uh, sorrow and ignorance. So I spent 30 years in the corporate world, a senior executive, and uh, as I you know, worked on myself, I saw more and more suffering at all levels, including the very top. And I found very, very painful to see that the ignorance and the leadership causing so much pain, or ignoring the pain, and it's like you can understand when it's wars in foreign lands, attacking your land, but when it's in your own country, your own town, your own family, then, then I get really sad. And I, so the, the concept of sorrow was, you know, I get really sad that we can do that to ourselves in the same company. And then I find myself struggling to have compassion with the people inflicting the pain because they're the ones who are actually the most wounded. Because if not, they would not inflict so much pain. So can you explore that a bit? Because in my life, it's a big struggle, that part. Uh, so, uh, uh, <laughs> what I'm about to say, I, I want to, know, I feel like I need to give a disclaimer. <laughs> uh, so I'm not speaking now as as a uh, as a therapist, since I'm not a therapist, <laughs> so this is just this is just my own experience, my sense of my own experience. And for me, 
there is a difference between sadness and sorrow. And really understanding that difference for me has been really helpful because I experience sadness as something um, I don't even know the right words. It, it feels like an authentic and true response to many situations. Many situations are sad. You know, and that feels like just a very human response and emotion. It's almost like, and, and it's really how I'm defining the term. So people may use these words differently than I'm using them. So keep that in mind. But in the way that I hear and use the word sorrow, there's much more a feeling of what I was talking about before of aversion to the situation and overwhelm. And I mean, even the phrase overwhelmed by sorrow. You know, where sadness, I mean, I've been in situations also that have been incredibly sad and maybe this is going to sound a little strange, but it might. <laughs> but sometimes it's like I almost find the beauty in sadness, in the emotion. There's, there's something, you may know what I'm talking about, that there can be something just deeply meaningful and poignant and beautiful in the, in the situation of feeling sad about something. And it just feels like a very different emotion than sorrow. So that distinction may actually allow you to feel the sadness and not think you know, that that shouldn't be there without falling into kind of the overwhelm or the heaviness of, of that sorrow. And in, again, it comes back to in the situation, is there something to do? Is there, is there something I can do in this situation or not? But in either case, you know, I think, I think the sadness is often a very appropriate response. So I don't know if that... Uh, So what, what about the compassion towards the people inflicting the pain? It's like the compassion would take the form. Well, it, it could take many, it can take different forms. One is, just as I was saying with the meta and the, you know, the suicide bombers, may you be free of hatred. That really is a compassionate wish because the hatred is the cause of their suffering. You know, not only the cause of their suffering, but the cause of them acting in ways that cause so much suffering. And so when we have that wish for them, may you be free of hatred, may you be free of ignorance, may you be free of all the causes in the mind that cause these actions. 
that result in these actions, that's a compassionate wish. Yeah. And it, it, it's the only one that really makes sense. You know, do, do we want to say, oh, feel more hatred. You know, feel angrier. It, it doesn't make sense. And so that's why when we understand really how compassion works, it is the only appropriate response to these situations. And it has nothing, it has zero to do with you know, condoning these actions. That's not what it's about. It, it's like, how do we, how do we get to alleviate or uproot the causes of these actions. And that's, that's the challenge for us. But, you know, the Buddha, the Buddha he, there's one very well-known phrase which we can see play out all over the world. I mean, the, the truth of it is so obvious, and yet we get caught in it again and again and again where he said, this is 2,600 years ago, and many people have expressed similar views since then, that hatred never ceases by hatred. It only ceases by love. You know, and we can just see it. If, if there's a lot of hatred, and then other people respond with hatred, what happens? The whole thing just keeps escalating and never comes to an end. So there has to be a way of, in the face of hatred, coming at it from a different, coming at it from underneath, so to speak. Not, not just meeting it with more hatred, because that just inflames everything. But this is challenging. This is, <laughs> you know, there's a reason all of this is called practice. <laughs> this is not easy. We are confronting the deepest patterns of our conditioning, not only our personal psychological conditioning, but the conditioning of our culture. You know, I mean, there are whole cultures based on revenge. You know, that's the cultural norm. Or cultures based on greed. You know, we're all very familiar with that. So we're facing, you know, as we're dealing with these challenging times, These are not easy matters. But the response, the appropriate response, is also not complicated. As my first Dharma teacher would say very often about many things, it's simple but not easy. You know? It's not complicated once we understand how the mind and heart are working and to see, okay, well, what's skillful, what's unskillful, what's helped what's helping and what's not helping. But to change the habit patterns of our conditioning, that takes practice. That's not an easy thing to do, and it, that's why it takes a certain amount of dedication. But I really feel that that, that really is what is going to help the world. You've uh, spoken a few times about uh, the impact of aversion. And um, 
I'm very sensitive to that, sort of resonating that um, personally as you talk about it. Um, and sort of how central it is, like working with aversion, how central that is to um, working effectively with these challenges. Um, I'm just wondering if you could say more about what sort of gives rise to that. And I know it's perhaps a deep question, just the, you know, what comes to mind now. Like, if compassion is such a natural thing that we feel, we're social animals, and it's so nat we sort of naturally sort of are empathic, and yet it gets very easily hijacked by um, an unwillingness to feel certain things and how deep the consequences could be. So if you maybe you just speak a little more to that and um, some more wisdom about how to deal with it. <laughs> okay, first, there is a good side to aversion. So it's helpful... Uh, to know and recognize that. Because each of these mind states, you know, and again, this is within the Buddhist kind of way of understanding the mind, you know, each of these unwholesome mind states of greed, of hatred, or aversion, delusion, have a positive flip side. And the positive flip side of aversion is discernment. We have, for, for aversive personalities, <laughs> you know, uh, Generally, they are seeing things pretty clearly. You know, so they, they have a very discerning mind. So the question then is first to value that. So not to dismiss the clarity of what you're seeing because that aversive conditioning is there. You follow? So, so you really want to value yeah, no, it? I'm seeing something pretty clearly. My mind hates it, but, but I'm seeing it pretty clearly. So you're valuing that. And then, really the core, which I've mentioned a few times now, the very core conditioning for aversion is our unwillingness or non-acceptance of what's unpleasant. Yeah, this, this goes very deep. We all like what's pleasant and don't like what's unpleasant. And most of our lives, this is what we're doing. We're just, <laughs> as best we can. You know, we keep going after the pleasant and trying to avoid the unpleasant. Well, that is a very tiring, ultimately unsatisfying life strategy because there is no way, as human beings, of avoiding unpleasant. Our life is a mix, and it is a mix for everybody. I mean, it's, this is so clear in terms of the process of this aging body. So this, I just turned 73 five days ago. First, it's unbelievable. <laughs> Two, who asked for this? <laughs> I mean, all of this stuff is going on outside of one control. Aversion to the unpleasant aspects of it, 
only adds suffering. The aversion, <laughs> it's like attachment and love. The aversion doesn't help the situation in any way. So it's realizing that the aversion can see clearly, oh yeah, this is what's going on. You know, so you value that, but then it's the practice, okay, it's okay. It's okay to feel unpleasant. So a teaching that the Buddha gave, which I, I found very helpful, this is with reference to the nature of the body, but it could apply to many circumstances of our lives. And, and I love, this teaching is like, if we really get this, it will save you years of suffering. Okay, so this is, this is a core pith teaching. So it's, it's, a, ref, it's a reflection. What is subject to illness will grow ill, and I am not exempt. What is subject to aging will age, and I am not exempt. What is subject to death will die, and I am not exempt. Now for me, the startling revelation of that reflection was that even after having taught this stuff for 40 years, I still feel like I am exempt. <laughs> or if not I am exempt, I should be exempt. <laughs> and it is such a powerful reminder, this is just the nature of things. It's not personal, it's not... This is the Dharma, right? But our tendency is to have aversion to this because it's unpleasant. You know, so that's, that's the deep conditioning. So we need all different ways in practice to counter that conditioning. Because that's the conditioning of delusion. And so I love, I can just be walking, you know, going for a walk and all of a sudden, oh, my knee. And I am not exempt. <laughs> and it just reminds me, you know, okay, this this is what's happening. And then I take care of it the best way I can. It doesn't mean, you know, not taking care, but it's just a different level of understanding and acceptance. So this, ju just to set a very high bar for what the practice is about, really about, and this is a teaching of the Buddha that kind of always makes me sit up straight <laughs> because it's like, you know, we can be going along and doing our practice and getting, you know, hopefully, you know, a lot of benefit from it. But he said one thing that just... <laughs> he said, as long as there's attachment to the pleasant and aversion to the unpleasant, liberation is impossible. That is a powerful statement given the strength of conditioning 
of attachment to pleasant and aversion to unpleasant. But rather than seem like, oh my God, I'll never get there, more I take it as an instruction for the little moments. Right? Just little moments of pleasant, little moments of unpleasant. Can I remember that? Okay, can I practice pleasant? Great. Just be with it without the grasping. Little moments of unpleasant. I am not exempt. Can I just be with it? So in that way, we're, we're actually practicing liberation all along the way, rather than seeing it as just some far-off goal. You know, I don't know whether you get the sense, but everything we've been talking about this evening is huge. It's just huge. It's, it's like, it's the entirety of our lives and the lives of everybody on the planet and how our heart and minds are working, you know, and the, the subtleties of the conditioning and habit patterns and you could call them neural pathways that have been established and really seeing, okay, well, what are the ones that are just causing more suffering for ourselves and others? What are the ones that lead out of the suffering? So this is meditation in this larger sense, in the sense of you can almost substitute the word understanding for meditation. This is our lives. It's not a hobby. You know, it's like, oh yeah, I'll, I'll meditate for half an hour a day and then go on and just live my life not paying attention. That's not what this is about. You know, this is really about the transform transformation of our lives and our consciousness. And through that, hopefully, you know, it has tremendous impact in the world. So actually, that might be a nice moment to stop. Why, why don't we just sit, sit for an hour and a half? And then <laughs> <laughs> just, just a couple of minutes. beings everywhere have hearts at peace. Thank you.
merci. Thank you, everyone. Um, as you come out, if you wanted to buy uh, one of Joseph's book, it's going to be there, and Joseph will be next to the book <laughs> for a few minutes signing. Uh, did we talk about that? <laughs> uh, yeah, you are? Okay. So a little tonight and a lot tomorrow of that. Also, if you, um, you want to come back tomorrow and it was not in your plan and you want to join this space so you can uh, purchase a ticket or... Okay. Uh, good night. Bonne nuit. Uh, get back home safely. And uh, ciao. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.